This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Brene Brown. Brene is a research professor at the University of Houston's Graduate College of Social Work, who has spent the past 10 years studying vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. Her 2010 TEDx Houston talk on the power of vulnerability is one of the most watched talks on TED.com, with over 6 million views. Brene is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. With Sounds True, Brene has created a new audio series that's also available as an interactive video course online called The Power of Vulnerability, Teachings on Authenticity, Connection, and Courage, where she dispels the cultural myth that vulnerability is weakness and reveals that it is, in truth, our most accurate measure of courage. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Brene and I spoke about wholeheartedness and what she learned from interviewing people who identify as being wholehearted. We also talked about the myths that surround vulnerability and what it means to quote-unquote be in the arena and take off our armor and dare greatly. Here's my conversation with Brene Brown. To begin with, Brene, I just want to thank you for taking the time and bringing yourself forward for this conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, okay. It's my pleasure. I'm I'm happy to be with you. I'd love it if you could bring our listeners up to speed with the research work you've been doing and how vulnerability emerged as such a central topic in your findings. Sure. Um, so this is my, I guess I'm going into my third, no, finishing my 12th year and um, as you know, looking into these experiences and emotions that I think really are the foundation of our lives. Um, I started, interestingly, I started my dissertation research and I was interested in studying connection. Um, you know, I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD. I was getting my PhD at the time in social work. And so, you know, all the social work education, the one thing I was absolutely clear on at that point um, was that connection is, you know, why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Um, and 
in the absence of connection, there is suffering. And social work is interesting because unlike psychology that just kind of looks at intrapsychic kind of what's going on within individuals or sociology that, you know, what's going on within communities, social work is really about the understanding the link between the social, political, economic world and our everyday lives. And so, you know, to me, finishing my work, my, my, my degrees in social work, it made sense to me that connection is why we're here and in the absence of it that they're suffering because I think they're suffering when there's the absence of connection within individuals. And I think we see in the world today suffering where as communities we're not connected to each other um, within or between. So I started off on this dissertation research trying to kind of understand the anatomy of connection, and I ran very quickly into shame. Um, I think it's an interesting dynamic, and I'd be so curious to know if you've experienced this too in all of your work, that often people explain what is by what isn't. You know, so when I sat down, I'm a qualitative interviewer, so when I sat down to talk to people about, tell me about the most important relationships in your life, tell me about connection, they told me stories about betrayal and heartbreak and loss. And so very quickly into, you know, it's funny, I think, because sometimes I've come to believe that we have words for pain and hurt, we have more accessible words for pain and hurt and loss than we do for joy which I think is a dangerous thing because maybe that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But as people explained the absence of connection or the the heartbreak that they had felt from a broken connection in their lives, I just, shame kept coming up and over and over and over. I kept hearing stories about people's fear of not being good enough to be connected or um, people afraid that something they've done or failed to do um, or something that had happened to them rendered them unworthy of love, of connection. And so after I finished my dissertation, I spent, you know, and kind of was a new professor, um, I spent six years really focusing just on shame, empathy, um, and everything that kind of swirls around those topics. And that's the first place where vulnerability really kind of emerged very as very critical, like... Um, and I, I, did, I wasn't sure, to be honest with you, what to make of it. You know, I didn't really understand vulnerability at that point. And probably I had some of my own bias because I think when I, I think with the bias that I brought in personally to the research was that vulnerability was a bad thing. And so I think in my early work, I talk about vulnerability as a strength, but I also talk about it as people who understand what their vulnerabilities are have a better time dealing with shame. Does that make sense? I wasn't fully with you at this last point, which is, I think, the point you're asking about how if I know where I'm vulnerable, I have a better understanding of shame in myself. Right. So what I found when I was studying shame is that men and women with high levels of resilience had four things in common. And one of them was they understood the triggers and the vulnerabilities that made them, that opened them up to shame. Uh-huh, yeah. So, for example, um, 
well, share my own life. It's the easiest because um, I can give you the most detail. Um, but, you know, for me, I have a lot of vulnerability around trying to balance my career and being a mom. And so knowing that's a vulnerability and knowing that I can feel really tender in that place helps because in those moments where I really screw something up or I miss a class play or, you know, Charlie's the only person who shows up on Pajama Friday without pajamas because I had just flown in that night before at midnight from, you know, somewhere and I didn't get the email, um, understanding what makes us feel vulnerable and tender is helpful because where we have we can bring more awareness we're more awake to sh- oh my gosh this this is potentially a shame hazard for me mm-hmm. you know and so be kind to myself be gentle get support don't beat yourself up um so i think when i first started talking about vulnerability i really talked about it as it's important to know what makes us feel tender and then I think after studying shame and really, you know, introducing a theory into the academic literature and talking a lot about what shame is, how it works, how we move through it constructively, um, I had a different question. And my question shifted to, you know, okay, I get shame, I understand shame resilience, but along the way, in these hundreds of interviews, I had interviewed men and women who you know, very much like me and you lived in this culture that is very shame-prone. I mean, I I would say our culture today is, I I would say we live in a culture of deep scarcity. That's how I call, you know, name our culture. Um, Scarcity is kind of the never-enough problem, you know. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. Nothing is certain enough or perfect enough or extraordinary enough and rich enough, thin enough, powerful enough, you know, whatever our thing is. And I had interviewed a lot around scarcity and and how it drives shame. But one of the things that was really profound for me was that in this interviewing, I met people who, again, like us, lived in a culture of scarcity but woke up in the morning and said, you know what, I'm a little bit afraid and I'm completely imperfect, but I am enough. And I'm going to engage with the world from a, a place where I believe I'm enough. And so kind of year seven for me was turning my research upside down and saying, hey, I'm going to go back in instead of focusing on just shame. I want to hear from these people who really seem to me have figured something out. Um, and interesting, I called them the wholehearted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually because I'm, I'm, we go to an Episcopal church in Episcopalian and um, – in one of the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer, which is what we use at our church, um, there is a line that says, "We, it's, I think it's our, conf- our confession, and it says, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. And when I was trying to think of a word that described these men and women who I'd interviewed, I kept thinking, man, these are people who live in love with their whole hearts. Like they are all in. Um, so I called them the wholehearted, and I went back and went back through that data re-interviewed many of them and started really kind of sampling to interview people who I felt were really wholehearted and asking them kind of what did they have in common. And the big two things that emerged for me 
in terms of what the wholehearted had in common. The first was that, you know, love and belonging are irreducible needs of men, women, and children. It goes back to my very first hypothesis in my research, my first belief that we're here for connection. And that was absolutely validated by this idea that love and belonging, irreducible needs for all, for all of us. We are, I think we talk about love and belonging in emotional terms. I think we talk about it in spiritual terms. But I really believe neurobiologically it's how we're wired. That the need for love and the need for belonging is in our DNA. And I think the absence of it is the source of absolute suffering. And so if you kind of crudely divided the people I've interviewed over the last decade or so into two groups, people who had this sense of love and belonging and people who struggled for it, there was one variable that seemed to really predict the difference. And I think it's important to say that when I say had this sense of love and belonging, I don't mean that they just had the capacity to love other people, but they felt deeply lovable. Um, And so the only thing that really predicted the difference between these two groups was a sense of worthiness. The people who had this deep sense of love and belonging simply believed they were worthy of it. And, you know, to be honest, that pissed me off a little bit. Um, Uh Yeah, because I was like, what does that mean? You know, because I don't think I put myself in that group. I think I, up until that point in my life, Anyone who'd watched has, you know, I have a TED talk where I talk a little bit about this process and I talk openly about the fact that, you know, that finding for me, that a sense of worthiness is key to experiencing love and belonging, fully experiencing it. Um, And, you know, was really earth shattering for me because. I think I really struggled, and I mean, I still struggle, but I think I really, I would not have put myself in the category of people who had a deep sense of love and belonging at that point in my life. I think I loved fiercely, but I don't think I would have never been able to say that I fiercely believed I was lovable, completely lovable. I think worthiness doesn't have, you know, real worthiness doesn't have prerequisites. And I think I was someone with a lot of prerequisites for, for, you know, being lovable at the time. Like I, I was, you know, I interviewed a lot of people where I saw myself reflected back in stories where people said, well, yeah, I'm lovable, but you know, I'd be really lovable if I lost 15 pounds. I'd be really lovable if I made partner. I'd be really lovable if my kid gets into Stanford. I'd be really lovable if I got promoted. I'd be really lovable if the, if my husband comes back, if my wife doesn't leave, if I stay sober, if I get sober, you know, this huge list of prerequisites. And I think one of the things I really learned in the research is that prerequisites bankrupt the entire meaning of worthiness. Mm-hmm. So these wholehearted people had, had you said, two qualities, one, the sense of worthiness, and then the, the second quality? Vulnerability. Uh-huh. Here the we go. real willingness to engage in vulnerability. Not just to understand it so that we could get a better handle on shame, 
but a real sense that vulnerability was essential to courageous living, that being vulnerable was not just about knowing what makes you feel tender or what where you feel, you know, open to attack or criticism, but a real kind of complete flip on how they saw vulnerability as courage and strength. That the willing to show up and be seen, to say what you're thinking, to say I love you first, to walk into difficult conversation, to hold space for uncertainty, that that was essential to wholeheartedness. Okay, so I'm imagining someone listening, and even just the word wholeheartedness sort of opens up this space, at least in my chest. And it's like, I want that. I want to be wholehearted. I want that. I want to live my life that way. So I want to go into both of these qualities, the sense of worthiness and also this ability to be vulnerable. First, the sense of worthiness. What did you learn about what helps people develop that? You know, it was interesting because at first I was like, what does that mean? I mean, is it like a, you know, I I thought maybe it's a declaration. Maybe it's a self-actualization. You know, maybe it's a process of self-actualization and then declaration. Like, you get you one day you get like, oh, I'm worthy, and then you declare you're worthy, and then you experience greater degrees of wholeheartedness. But that was not the case at all. Um, basically, what I found is that these folks who kind of fell into this wholehearted camp made different choices, daily choices in their lives. They had practices embedded in their lives that led to different ways of living and different ways of making choices about things that some of us don't even think about at all, much less consciously make choices. And so that, you know, that kind of gave birth to the gifts of imperfection. Like what I found were 10 guideposts you know, the 10 things that these folks had in common, I call them guideposts for wholehearted living, that were basically daily practices, stuff that I talk about, you know, these are the 10 that I, the guideposts that I go through in the power of vulnerability. Um, do you want to go through all of them? Are you to talk about a few of them? Maybe you could just give a couple examples to give people the sense yeah. of this development of worthiness. Sure. So for example, um, perfectionism. So, so let me back up and say a little bit, when I started looking at what, what are these choices and these practices that the wholehearted have in common, I wasn't interested, because you know, I, I come from a shame background, so I wasn't just interested in what they were doing. I was interested in understanding from them what were the gremlins and the shame messages that they had to work through in order to really engage in these practices daily. Because you know that's the that's so that's the hard thing to me about the current state of a lot of you know books and literature about how to live better lives. It's they'll say you need to do this, you need to do this, and you need to do this, but they never you know often they rarely come out and say, but man, in order to get there, there's going to be some really hard stuff in the process. And so one of the things I did is I focused on both. Not only what do we want to start doing every day, but what do we need to let go of it or do more of in order to get there. So for the first one, you know, one of them is cultivating self-compassion. You know, one thing that these folks had in common is self-compassion. And I have to be honest with you, I don't think of anything that I learned from these, every single thing I learned from these folks is a practice. Like, I've always thought until this research that self-compassion was 
a thing. Like you either had it or you didn't. But it didn't, that is not what emerged in my data. What emerged in my data is self-compassion as a practice. And in order to get there, what did these folks have to let go of? And what I found in my research, the biggest barrier to self-compassion is perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And so in order to practice self-compassion, we have to let go of the idea that perfection will keep us safe. You know, I always, I always thought that perfectionism was kind of, you know, we, I, I know people talked about it as a bad thing, but I always thought it was kind of a good thing. You know, I had accomplished a lot, and I thought, well, I, everything that I have, I owe to the fact that I'm pretty perfectionistic. I like do it, do it perfect, or don't do it at all. But the more I started studying this, the more I realized that perfectionism isn't at all about striving to be excellent or trying to be our best selves. Um, and in fact, in the research, not only my data, but research from many other fields, um, the opposite of perfectionism is actually healthy striving. And so what I talk about in my work is that perfectionism is not about trying to strive for excellence. It's a cognitive, behavioral way of looking at the world that says, if I look perfect, live perfect, act perfect, and do it all perfectly, I can avoid or minimize shame, blame, criticism, judgment. And so perfectionism isn't at all about striving to be our best. It's about protecting ourselves. And so I, you know, I call, I've come to call you know, perfection the 20-ton the shield. We carry it around thinking that it's going to you know, keep us safe when what it really does is keep us from being seen. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to start practicing self-compassion, we have to let go of perfectionism. And those are just, for me, those are not even daily practices. They're like hourly practices. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm writing something or I'm sending an, you know, an email or I'm doing something with my kids, I have to really work on saying, this is good, this is enough, this is great, I'm having fun, it's the process counts, um, I'm being kind to myself, I'm not beating myself up or the people around me, um, and I'm doing it for me, not for what other people think, which is what kind of drives perfectionism. And so that was one example. Um, another guide post, one of my favorites, um, it wasn't at the time because it, it kind of hit me hard, but um, was creativity. One of the things that every wholehearted person shared in common, and again, this is over 10 years, thousands of interviews, 11,000 plus pieces of data, every single wholehearted person shared in common creative endeavors. They, they engaged with their creativity. Um, and creativity was a practice. And the thing they had to let go of, which was very surprising to me um, at first, but the thing they had to let go of was comparison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another example of, you know, wholeheartedness is cultivating laughter, song, and dance. And let me tell you, Tammy, you have no idea how resistant I was to this. I was like, and in fact, the first, the first edition of the manuscript that I wrote didn't even have that guidepost in it. Uh-huh. 
And my doctoral students were like, what about the laughing and the singing and the dancing? I'm like, I don't know if we have enough data to really back that up. And they're like, we do. And I'm like, I- I'm not sure. And they're like, oh, my God, you don't want to put that in there. And I was like, well, it just seems so flaky to me. And they're like, it doesn't matter. It's the data. I'm like, you know, and so it's true. One of the guideposts was cultivating laughter, song, and dance and letting go of being cool. Yeah. Which clearly was an issue for me because I didn't want to put it in there. As I'm listening to you describe this, I think, you know, one of the things about worthiness is that I think people have this idea that, oh, that person had like a good childhood. Their parents really loved them. And that's why they have a sense of worthiness. Not that this is something that's available to all of us if we engaged in these practices that you're describing. No, and let me tell you, that was my first thought, too. My first thought was, of course, there are wholehearted people who have a sense of worthiness because their lives have been great. And so we went back into the data asking, you know, was, were their lives great? Did they turn out more beautifully than the rest of ours? And the answer was no. I mean, it was a resounding no. There were not fewer divorces, bankruptcies, you know, histories of trauma, histories of addiction, there were not fewer of those things. Um, now, certainly, I will have to say, you know, as someone, you know, I've, I've studied parenting since I started my work, so I've always thought about family of origin issues. And certainly, I think we can raise children who are, you know, I always describe wholeheartedness as the North Star. You can walk toward it and in, the, in that direction your whole life, but I don't know that we ever arrive there. But we can certainly always be, you know, moving toward it, and we can always certainly know where we're heading in the right direction and know when we're heading in the wrong direction. And I think we can raise our children pointed toward wholeheartedness and, you know, with, a, with seeing what that looks like. But I don't think that's a prerequisite, you know. Now, you know, if you are raised, if you're in your family – there is a lot of perfectionism and a lot of comparison and cool is way more important than, you know, the awkwardness that comes with being silly and laughing and playing and dancing. Are you going to have a lot more work to do? And are you going to have a lot more gremlins? You know, gremlins is kind of the word I use for shame triggers. Are you going to have a lot more gremlins to befriend and understand and quiet down? No doubt. You know, if you're raised in a household where vulnerability was really, you know, inwardly or outwardly seen as weakness, is it going to be harder to grow up and be an adult who engages openly with vulnerability? For sure. But, you know, I think I'm an absolute example of that. I was raised in a family where there was very little vulnerability tolerated, you know, it was not only just the family culture, it was, you know, I'm Texan. I was raised in a very kind of, you know, tough, suck it up, soldier on. You know, you want to learn how to ride your bike, you don't need training wheels. You want to learn how to swim, you don't need goggles. Goggles, training wheels, that's for weak people. You know, you get in there and you strong arm it and you get it done. And some of that has served me, uh, certainly in some ways, but a lot of it has set me way back. And I had, I think, a lot more work to do. So being vulnerable was a very scary thing for me. 
mm-hmm. because, you know, not only did I, you know, grow up as I would have to say the vast majority of people in our culture grew up with the, you know, with the mythology that vulnerability is weakness. I grew up with the idea and that weakness is repugnant. It's, it's the opposite of lovable. Mm-hmm. And so I do think wholeheartedness is available to all of us. Um, but I also do think how we grew up can either, you know, leave us with some more work to do or point us in the right direction. But I will say from a parenting perspective, which is, I think, very difficult, I don't think we can raise children who are more wholehearted than we are. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think if I want Ellen and Charlie if to be, if Ellen and Charlie grow up facing in the right direction and taking some, some steps on that map toward wholeheartedness, it won't be because I fed them the intellectual information or the data about what it looks like. It's, beca- it's going to be because they saw their dad and I doing it. You know, and so that's kind of the goal in our family. The goal in our family is, you know, be the adult you want your children to grow up to be. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Let's go right into this idea then of practicing vulnerability, vulnerability as a practice. Let's say somebody's listening and they're thinking to themselves, I know I need to be more vulnerable, but I'm not actually quite sure where I start. What do I do? Do I, in a conversation, do I, you know, share something personal? What do I do? So there are four major myths about vulnerability. I think it could be helpful just to kind of just go through real quickly before we start this conversation, just so people understand what I'm talking about and what I'm not talking about when I talk about vulnerability. So I define, again, based on the research, I define vulnerability simply as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. The myths are that vulnerability is weakness, which I think we're talking about and we'll keep talking about that vulnerability, you know, is not weakness. It's, I think it's our greatest measure of courage. The second myth is that I can opt out of vulnerability. Like, well, Tammy and Brene are having an interesting conversation. I'm not, I don't really do vulnerability. The truth is we all do vulnerability. To be alive, to be human is to be vulnerable. To be human is to be up against uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure all the time. And so you can't opt out of it. And if you don't know what you do when you are feeling vulnerable, then vulnerability is probably unconsciously doing you. You're doing something, and we'll talk about that in a second. The third myth is that vulnerability is letting it all hang out. That someone listening thinks, okay, so I should just share my hard story with the next person I talk to. That's not a vulnerability. Vulnerability is about sharing our stories with people who've earned the right to hear them. Vulnerability is about intimacy and trust. 
vulnerability without you know without boundaries is not vulnerability. It's oversharing, it's desperation, it's attention seeking. It can be a lot of different things, um, but it's not vulnerability. And then the last one is that I can become more vulnerable on my own. I don't need anyone to do that with. And vulnerability by definition is relational. So it requires other people in this practice. So I think if you're listening and you're thinking, I'd like to be more vulnerable, what is where does that what does that look like? I think the first place to start is what are you currently doing with vulnerability? Because I think, you know, before one of the things I talk about in the power of vulnerability is this idea of the armory. You know, I think one of the big ironies of vulnerability is that growing up, we develop weapons and armor to protect ourselves from vulnerability. Because as children, feeling vulnerable is scary. It feels out of control. We feel hurt. And so we develop armor to keep us safe. And then, you know, we become adults and there's this huge realization, usually around midlife, where people you know, we come to this place of understanding when we're like, oh, my God, to become the person, the partner, you know, the parent that I want to be, I have to put down the weapons and take off all the armor that has kept me safe for all these years because it's not serving me anymore. I'm an adult now. I don't need to do that anymore to stay safe. I can make different, you know, I can make choices. And to be you know, wholehearted and fully in, we can't walk around with 100 pounds of armor on and, you know, weapons in our hands. And so I think the first question we ask ourselves in this process is, you know, what were some of the lessons and what, you know, either spoken or unspoken that I what what are my thoughts on vulnerability? What did I learn about vulnerability growing up? What did I see modeled? You know, where where am I in relationship with this idea of being vulnerable? And then the second part, I think, is, and again, it's just not like a lockstep recipe because we're all very different. But I think an, an, another important early process is what do what do I do now when I feel vulnerable? Like, how am I armoring up against vulnerability? Because I don't think it's that Jungian, Carl Jung, you know, quote, we must first accept the things we want to change. And so I think in order to really become more vulnerable, we have to figure out what we're doing with it. Do I use perfectionism? Do I numb with alcohol, drugs, food, sex, the Internet, you know, do I, you know, one of the interesting things I talk about in The Power of Vulnerability and one of the, I think, very almost not quite universal but close to universal um, armor that, you know, is something I call foreboding joy. Like is is there is one way that you protect yourself against vulnerability is you just kind of stay in a constant state of disappointment. I'm never going to get too excited. I'm never going to be too let down. You know, something, you know, something hap- exciting is happening. I'm just going to, you know, wait for the other shoe to drop, know that it really won't pan out. And, you know, if it pans out, okay. But if it, you know, because one of the things I've noticed about all of us, myself included, is 
we don't let ourselves, you know, the most vulnerable emotion to experience, I believe, is joy. I don't think it's shame. That might be a close second in terms of discomfort, but I don't think it's shame. I don't think it's fear. I don't even think it's grief. I think joy is the most vulnerable thing that we're up against on a daily basis. And that's because we're afraid that it won't last, it'll get taken away. Yeah. It's inviting disaster. You know, and so one of the things that we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to, you know, when we lose our capacity for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. Mm-hmm. Brene, this capacity to just deal with pain, it's going to hurt. If I actually open my heart this much, take all the armor off, I'll be so exposed and there's so much pain in there. Things I haven't grieved or the possibility of pain, people will criticize me and that's really going to hurt if I step forward mm-hmm. in this way. So, I mean, how do you develop this muscle where you know that you can handle whatever pain might be part of the process? Here you're talking about joy, the pain of, of the potential loss. I'm listening to you. You have such a therapeutic voice. I'm listening to you and I'm like, I don't know. It's dangerous. Don't do it. (laughs) um, Because it's scary. It's so, I mean, I, one thing I really try to do in my work is be really honest. And I, you know, if there was an alternative that was less frightening, I, I would study it and I would shout it from the, from the mountaintop. But I think the bottom line is that our capacity for wholeheartedness can never be greater than our willingness to be brokenhearted. Uh-huh. You know, and I I can, you know, and I think about the, you know, I think about the love that I feel for my children, I think about the excitement I feel about some things in my career. I think about and it's so much easier just say, I'm just going to be halfway in so that when everything, so if something happens, I'll only be halfway hurt. Mm-hmm. But the truth is you can't be halfway hurt. None of us are missing out on the pain, let me tell you for sure. Well, well, can't I be halfway hurt if I'm sort of holding back and I'm not really there? It's still, it's not hurting as much? Or you're saying that's no, not true? that is, the, I think that's mythology. That's uh-huh. like... People who, you know, a great example of foreboding joy is, you know, you know, your daughter drive your son drives off on their prom date and, you know, you're thinking your heart's swelling and you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, I love you so much. And then you picture, you know, the car wreck and you're like, oh, my God. And and you're like, well, you know, and there's so many of us that take that, that catastrophizing to the very detail and who's going to call me and what's that call going to be like. And people who are listening and people who have, you know, received those calls will tell you there's no amount of planning or being half in that can take away the tragedy and the pain and the terror of that kind of loss. But what we can do and what we do do is we for sure squander the joy that we need to fill us 
and make us resilient and stronger so when those things do happen that we have balance in our lives that we you know I don't think we can protect you know a great story that I I tell in in Daring Greatly is about a man who said I spent my whole life never you know believing it was always best to never get too excited you know are too disappointed about anything. So I always kind of just plan for the worst, and if things turned out okay, then it was a pleasant surprise. Again, a perfect example, in my opinion, as a researcher, of someone who's choosing to, that it, choosing, you know, saying it's easier to live disappointed than to feel disappointment. A constant state of disappointment is easier than dipping in and out of it. And he said, you know, when I interviewed him, he was in his late 60s. And he said, you know, in his earlier 60s, he had been in a car accident with his wife and she was killed. And he said he spent a lot of years thinking about all of the all of the moments that he never fully grasped and, you know, softened into out of the fear of being disappointed and how he wished more than anything after her loss that he could go back and fully live those moments. You know, there was no part of him or anyone I've interviewed, and I've interviewed people who have you know, survived horrendous loss, from violent loss to genocide to you know, parents who've lost children to disease. There's no one that has ever told me, yeah, you know, I, I experienced this horrific loss, but, you know, it was not so bad because I, you know, I never let myself be too joyful. Never once. I mean, you have vast experience in this landscape. Have you ever heard anyone say that? I know what you're saying. And yet I can still feel this sense of if I actually open up and put myself out there, I may be rejected you know mm-hmm. and and that rejection i'd rather just stay off the stage not take that as you call it move into the arena because that rejection will just be too painful you know so one of the one of the so we're talking about in the arena and i think it's a really helpful metaphor so one of the you know a metaphor that i use a lot in my work is this idea of daring greatly you know i think being vulnerable is about daring greatly, and it comes from a quote from Theodore Roosevelt, and I'll just share a small piece of it to give you know listeners context. So in his in a speech that he gave at the Sorbonne um, in Paris, I think in the early 1900s, he, he said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Their credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And so, you know, what I hear you asking and what I hear everyone asking and what I, what I contemplate myself on a daily basis is going into the arena without our armor and our weapons is terrifying, and what if I get booed? And what if I get laughed at? And what if I get criticized? What if I fall or trip or stumble or fail? The answer, you know, in, in you know, the, the the fact is that if you go into the arena on a regular basis, 
you are going to screw it up and you are going to get booed off stage and you're going to get criticized and you're going to fail. There's no question. If you do it enough, it's going to happen. It happens to me all the time. But I think the most, to me, probing question we ask ourselves and when I ask myself all the time is, yes, vulnerability is, 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 feels dangerous and yes, it feels scary and maybe even terrifying. But is it more scary and does it feel more dangerous to get to the end of our lives and wonder, looking back, what would have happened had I shown up? What would have happened had I been all in? You know, and I'll, I'll give you a very simple, these are, you know, big, grand metaphors, right? I'll give you a very simple example. When we asked people, what is vulnerability? People would say, you know, examples included things like, vulnerability is initiating sex with my wife, initiating sex with my partner, um, saying I love you first in a relationship, um, sitting down with my wife who has stage four breast cancer and trying to make plans for our young children. One of the, one of the examples that came, you know, starting my own business, um, you know, one of the examples that came up a lot that I think we can all relate to is vulnerability is picking up the phone and calling a friend who, had je- who something tragic has just happened to. They've mm-hmm. lost a partner. They lost a child. They just had a horrible di- you know, cancer diagnosis or something. Vulnerability is picking up the phone and making that call. And would you agree that that's vulnerable? That feels... Definitely. Definitely. It's very awkward. I don't know what to say. I'm scared to do this. Yeah. Right. I'm going to screw it up. Yep. I'm not going to say something that makes everything better, which you can't make everything better. The best you can do in those situations is say, I'm with you. I'm hurting for you. I'm connected. You know. So what do most of us do? Myself included. You know, and I'm, you know, I have, you know, 15 years of higher education and uncomfortable conversations and I still do this. We walk up to the phone, we circle it, we think, you know what, let me call in an hour so she, they probably got company over. An hour turns into a couple hours and they're like, oh God, I've really got to call over there. I don't want to call. Okay. You know what? It's probably dinner time. You know what I'll do? I think I'll bake a really nice casserole and take it over tomorrow. And we can't bear the, 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 the uncertainty, the risk, the emotional exposure, the vulnerability of it. And so one of the things I ask audiences often, because I think it's very telling, is, and I'll ask you, because you know, we're in this conversation and I think we, we represent you know, everybody. We're, it's a human experience. What does it feel like for you when you do pick up the phone and you walk into that really difficult conversation and you hang up the phone, how do you feel? After I've made the call? Mm-hmm. Uh, it might depend on how the call went, to be honest. Well, if the call, I mean, if the call went well and you feel like, man, the person I talk to knows that I'm here and that I'm connected and I'm going to be present. Then I would feel a sense of love. I would feel a sense of bondedness with them and I'd feel good. Right. Now, how would you feel if you kind of blew the call off because it was too vulnerable, too uncomfortable, and a day turned into a week and a week turned into two weeks and you ran into her at the grocery store? Guilty and awkward. 
terrible, right? Yep. Because the thing is that vulnerability is about courage. And people ask me all the time, well, what's the one, is there anything I can take into the arena? You want me to take my armor off? You want me to take the shield down? Is there anything I can take into the arena with me that will help me? And there is. There's one thing that I would never go into the arena without. And that is a very clear sense of my values. For me, courage is a huge value in my life. I set an intention every morning to be courageous. Integrity, another huge value in my life. To, be, to make choices every day that reflect who I am and what I really believe. Love, a huge value in my life. God, another major value in not everybody's life but mine, for sure. And so what happens when I hang up the phone and I've made that call and it's awkward and you know he or she's in more pain than I thought and I stammered and I you know and I I stuttered and I didn't say things right and I didn't cure it which no one can but I but they do know I'm here and that their their grief is more important than my comfort what I feel in that moment is completely aligned with my values of God, love, courage, integrity. If I run into you at the grocery store two weeks later and I have, I blew off the call because I was, you know, just too afraid or too, felt too awkward or too just uncomfortable. And that experience, like you felt, you said awkward, guilty. That's the definition of guilt. Guilt is cognitive dissonance. Guilt is when we hold up something we've done or failed to do up against who we want to be and our values, and there is a huge gap. And so to me, yes, I think vulnerability is hard, and yes, I think we risk getting hurt. And I think if you, if, if comfort is a priority for you, Vulnerability is not going. Vulnerability is going to be really difficult. But if there are values that you put ahead of comfort, like love and courage, empathy, compassion, then vulnerability is not optional. I'm curious if you've developed a muscle or a skill in receiving negative feedback. You put yourself out there and actually you are criticized and people do mm-hmm. make fun of you and you're not cool. And and mm-hmm. that feedback comes in and yeah, it hurts. And then what's the skill that helps you move through that? I, I've got a couple um, that I've developed, you know, just in doing this work and working myself through this stuff personally. And the first one is, you know, when I read that quote, from Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, I just burst into tears um, because three things hit me like a ton of lead. The first one is, that's who I want to be. I want to be in the arena. And I'll, I'll, I'll take the dust and the sweat and the blood every now and then. Um, I want to be. 
I want to be in the arena. The second thing was, oh my gosh, this is everything I've ever learned about vulnerability in this quote. And it's a great metaphor, and I do believe to be vulnerable is to dare greatly. The third thing that really was transformational for me personally is from that moment forward, and I mean it was a moment in time, like it was a definitive, like I know what I was wearing, I know where I was sitting moment. I I put into place a policy that basically is this. If you are not a person who is in the arena getting your ass kicked on a regular basis, I am not interested in your feedback, period. Mm-hmm. Period. So if you're the anonymous commenter on CNN.com or somewhere where I've got an article and you're leaving a comment that says, hey, you know, spend less time doing research and more time getting some Botox, which is an actual comment. Or, hey, if I were Brene Brown, I'd embrace imperfection too because, you know, what choice does she have if you look like that? Anonymous comment. I'm not interested. A, I'm probably not even going to read it anymore or, you know, I'm really not going to actually read it anymore. And B, I'm not interested because in the broadest sense of humankind, you count because you're a person and people count. But in my world of my work, you don't count. Mm -hmm. Now, you brought up in giving examples about how people responded to this question of what does it mean to be vulnerable, the example of either a man or a woman approaching their partner for a sexual encounter and how vulnerable Mm -hmm. that is. And it seems like in our intimate relationships, that's a special a special type of vulnerability. Here we're talking about the anonymous commenter on CNN, and I think that's really important to consider. But I'm also really interested here in these most intimate moments of our life, how terrifying it can be with the person we love the most. And I think sexuality is, you know, God, where it's it seems the most terrifying for many of us. What do you have to say in, in that respect about encouraging people to be vulnerable in their intimate relationships it's so hard it's so hard like i i you know i could say as a researcher you know i could tell you that vulnerability is the birthplace of intimacy you know but as a person who's been you know with my partner for 25 years and we have a very loving relationship and we're very close it's still really hard um and I think one of the reasons why it's so hard, and let me tell you, this cut across everyone. This, everyone felt this way about sex, or at least sex that involved intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think what we all have a tendency to do is that we wake up in the morning, we put on our armor for the day, we go out in the world, we kick ass, we do our work, you know, we fight traffic, we you know, argue with colleagues, we shuttle kids around if we have them, we do every, you know, and we get home and we, you know, get everything done that we have to do. And then most of us don't ever take the armor off. I mean, it's a lot of work to take the armor on and off. It's it just, it's a lot of work. And so our armor stays on. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're standing, you know, with our partner And then how do you just all of a sudden, after combative days, day after day after day, 
you know, genuinely melt into this intimacy and this vulnerability and, boy, I see you and I love you and I want to be seen by you when we spend our whole day making sure we're not seen and that people see what they want to see. You know, and so it's couples, it's really couples who've done a lot of work around this issue and individuals who belong to those couples who, you know, I think for me it's it's changed dramatically since I just stopped putting so much armor on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I just don't, it's, it's changed the way I live. It's changed the people I hang out with because, you know, if you're not going to be armored up during the day, you can't, you can't be going into battle every day. So if you're a friend who, if we're going to go to lunch and i got to spend an hour and a half battling with you about how, whose kids are going to, you know, doing better on standardized testing and what are you driving and how much are you making, then I, I can't do that with you anymore because I can't live with armor on anymore because it's keeping me away from the intimacy, not only sex, sexual intimacy, but intimacy with my children and my close friends and my family. And so I think it, wholeheartedness is about a big shift in living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because we began our conversation and you were talking about this sort of belief you had, investment in connection and how humans, all humans need this connection. And listening to you, what I'm feeling is how comfortable you sound in your own skin. Not even, you know, whether or not you and I are genuinely connecting or not or whatever, but just how inspiring it is to listen to someone who seems comfortable in themselves and how we all long for that. We all want to be comfortable in our own skin. Yeah, I think that's the big door prize, right? I mean, I think that's the biggest gift of our life is to get to a place where we're comfortable with who we are. And that, you know, there's a quote that I say a lot from my work that's, you know, owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing we'll ever do. And I think a lot of times getting to the point where we really genuinely love ourselves and we get there by owning the stories. This is who I am. These are the things I've been through. These are the things that were great. These are the things that sucked. These are the moments I'm so proud of, and these are the moments that really terrorize me with shame that I've, I've, you know, I've moved through, but it's been super hard. This is all of me. And I love myself, and, I, and these stories, I'm not going to orphan my, I'm not going to orphan the stories anymore that don't fit with what you think I'm supposed to be, because this is all of me. I think... That is wholeheartedness. I think that is the practice. I think that is the gift of vulnerability. Brene, one final question here, which is, in your work, one of the things that was a real aha moment for me was when you were talking about that we live in a culture of narcissism, where people are very obsessed with themselves, and that really what you were pointing to as underneath this self-obsession is a sense that it's not okay to just be an ordinary person, that we somehow feel we have to be this extraordinary, fabulous, you know, superstar. 
and that, you know, we're ashamed of just being an ordinary person. And there's a way when I think about being comfortable in one's own skin, it actually also means being okay, just kind of being an ordinary person. And I'd love to hear you talk about that, because I know in my own life, that's been a real struggle for me to just be okay being one of a gajillion people, and that that's fine. I, you know, I don't have to be an extraordinary anything. Yeah, I think, you know, it's that has been such, I have come into such powerful personal awareness of what that means in my life. I mean, I know what it meant in the research that I can't even articulate where I am with that right now. I mean, what I can say is that all of this talk of narcissism, you know, and is so, you know, there are certainly narcissists among us and we all have that capacity and some, you know, and traits of that probably. But, you know, the thing that people don't understand about narcissism is that of all the personality disorders, if you want to get really technical, it is the one most underpinned by shame. Shame absolutely drives narcissism. And so to me, I think narcissism is a label. I'm not a fan of labels. I think it means a lot of stuff that I don't know whether we actually know is true or not. So to me, I think it's easier to think about it as kind of the shame-based fear of being ordinary. And I think being ordinary has become a shame trigger in this culture where everything is about flash and everything is about be big, better, have more, you know. And I think, I don't know, maybe for me as a researcher and just as a person, as a partner and a mom and, you know, just a person, a sister or daughter, um, what I what changed me the most was talking to the people that I mentioned earlier that had gone through really great, great losses. I mean, losses that I can't, I have my, my share of, you know, hard things in my life, but these were things I, I couldn't even fathom sometimes, you know, genocide, burying a child. And when I asked them, what do you miss the most? Like, what's the hardest? None of them said anything about the extraordinary moments that weren't going to happen or the extraordinary moments that happened that won't be repeated. Everyone said, every single person said, I wish I would have been paying more attention to the ordinary moments. I wish I could hear my kids laughing in the backyard through the screen door. I wish I could come downstairs and see my husband sitting at the table, you know, pissed off because I bought the wrong brand of bread. You know, I wish I could get one of those wacky text messages from my mom again. And I was so struck by that. And it made me realize that two things. That's one thing they told me. The other thing they said, which is also related and life-changing for me, was when I asked how do we as individuals and as a community, as a collective, show more compassion for people who've been through hard loss. And you know what the answer was over and over? Gratitude. If you could be grateful for what you have, it honors what I've lost. Hmm. Don't shy away from loving your child and being grateful for your child because I've lost mine. Because when you honor those ordinary moments with your child, you honor the profound nature of my loss. And so to me... I 
I really build my life around that now. Like I really, we practice gratitude as a family. I, you know, there are things in my career that are super fun and exciting. I get to, you know, go places and meet people. But I don't do that very much. And I never do it if I have to miss carpool or soccer practice or those things. Because I will not miss those moments. Um, Because they are the moments that I think they're the moments that make me who I am, that make me comfortable in my skin and remind me of how grateful I am for what I have. And that what I have has nothing to do with meeting famous people or getting to go talk somewhere or writing a book or the things I get to do in my professional life. I'm grateful for those and they're I'm so grateful because I'm passionate about my work, but it's the ordinary moments in my life. If you string those together, that tells you who I am. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Brene Brown, and with Sounds True, Brene has created a six-session audio series called The Power of Vulnerability, teachings on authenticity, connection, and courage. And This series is also available as an online interactive video course where participants will have the chance to interact live with Brene and ask her questions. With Sounds True, Brene has also produced a two-session audio program on men, women, and worthiness, the experience of shame and the power of being enough, as well as an upcoming audio program on parenting. Brene, I'm so really pleased and grateful that you've chosen to work with Sounds True and put out this important work on connection and courage and authenticity and for your own work and your willingness to just step out. Thank you. Thanks for doing thank it. You and thank you. Thank, you are in the arena all the time, too, and I'm grateful for that because we wouldn't have this incredible, we wouldn't have Sounds True without you, you know, opening that door and walking in continuing to walk into it, you know, walk further and further out every day. Yeah. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks, everyone, for listening.